0: Welcome to another Beef Educator Series podcast. I'm Dr. Ryan Larson, uh, along here with Dr. Matt Garcia, and also Kevin Heaton, one of our county faculty. I uh, appreciate you having us with, being with us, Kevin. How are you doing this morning?
1: Pretty good, and,
0: and how are you guys? Surviving, surviving. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. We wish we could be down south with Kevin in, in, his, in his county there, but situations don't allow that, so... We're gonna just do this virtually, and he's growing some gray face, some some uh, pandemic facial hair. looks Looks good, Kevin. <laughs> a little jealous, but so, so Kevin, just a to... more,
2: what's a lot more gray than a lot
0: more gray than red. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Stress. Oh? Yeah. Yep. Kevin, I just want to ask uh, you know one of the big things that we're seeing you know following the drought monitor. What are you seeing down south with some of those the range conditions and 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 with our low precip year this dry year? What are you seeing as far as, as going on with the, the producers down south?
1: Well, we we had a, an average winter, uh, and then we got to about uh, April, maybe the first part of May, and somebody flipped a switch and we've got almost zero moisture since then. In fact, uh, one of our my family's allotment down the Arizona Strip got, uh, during the month of September and October got 0.1 percent of normal precipitation. And I don't know, I want to know how they measure that. But anyway, that's, that's what it was. But so i'm I'm thinking probably since May we've got you know twenty to thirty percent of of moisture that we normally, and, and some areas are probably lower than that, you know five to thirty percent of of the moisture that we normally get during and 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 the thing that's really uh maybe stress that even more is that it's the second year that we've had no monsoonal precipitation. And so those, uh, well, usually you can handle one pretty good year of drought, but the, the monsoon precipitation is really what kicks in those cows to uh, get rebred and gives them a little more protein to stay bred. And uh, without that, uh, monsoonal precipitation, particularly those those calves that may have been a little bit late calving that first year, that second monsoon just wipes them out of the picture. And
2: to kind of touch on that a little bit more, I mean we're gonna we're gonna get on that a lot more as we talk a little bit going forward. But could you just kind of tell us a little bit about your your family's operation in terms of you know history and who's who's who
1: was originally involved, who's currently involved. And like where you guys ranch okay so so my my family is runs the heat and livestock company out of Alton, utah and it's uh it started uh well the little town of alton my ancestors were some of the first people to settle in that country and uh along with the roundies and uh so they Started Agriculture Enterprises back in the early 30s. My great-grandfather was killed in a farming accident there in Alton, and about six, eight months or so, or six months before he was killed, an insurance salesman came by and sold him a life insurance policy, and his wife was an Esplan, which they're known for being very thrifty, or we call them tight. She was pretty mad at, about him spending money on this this insurance policy that didn't give any return. And yeah, I and mean, then uh, a, a few months later, of course, he was killed and they were able to capitalize on that insurance policy. And my grandpa was eight years old, youngest of eight kids. And uh, they grew up kind of a pretty meager lifestyle, started in the uh, sheep business at that time as pretty much every everybody had sheep and they herded sheep for other people and uh, uh, eventually started purchasing permits and private land with uh, this money that they've uh, accumulated through herding sheep. And uh they ran sheep up until oh about the mid sixties late sixties, and then they started to convert over to cattle about that time when predators were hard to control or there there wasn't a lot of help controlling them. They took ten eighty off the market and uh and and labor finding people to help herd the sheep was was pretty challenging so i switched over to cattle and uh, eventually um just kept building the operation to where it is uh today so i don't know if that's if you need more details than that but anyway no that that's pretty good so so i guess they so they herded a lot of their sheep out on the arizona strip and and so they'd use the the higher elevation uh, country in Southern Utah. And then they'd go out on the Arizona strip and winter their sheep out there in some of the high desert uh, plateaus. So that's the, and then and, and we still do that today. And we use a lot of the same historic cattle trails to get the livestock back and forth. And it's about a hundred miles between the two operations, or between the summer and winter permits. We have, uh, usually we have an annual cattle drive, so in the fall when the calves are weaned. About this time, yeah, the end of October, first part of November, we trail those cattle about approximately 100 miles um, from the rim of Bryce Canyon National Park to the rim of the Grand Canyon National Park. So anyway, cows get their share of scenery.
2: How long are they out there at the end of, after you're done driving them? How long
1: do they stay out there? So the so it's about a 10 day cattle drive and they'll stay in Arizona about seven months and then they'll come back and we'll haul them in, in the spring of the year back to Utah. And they'll stay on private and the national forest pastures uh, for about uh, five months. So I guess, Due to the variability you've seen in moisture down there, have you ever had to pull those cattle off that seven month allotment sooner? So, yeah, well, uh, it, yes and no. In answer to your question, so like this year, extremely dry, a lot of the, those summer monsoon precepts grow the forage that we eat during the winter. So we're eating a lot of dry dormant forage and this year we've got about 20, 20 stock ponds down there and about two of those stock ponds actually have water in them they were carried over from last year we've got about 10 catchments and about most of them have a little bit of water um one of them's full carry over from last year and the rest of them are about half to three quarters full and so we, we We've got limited feed, just no monsoons, limited water um the Arizona strip is a great place to calve out cattle and we calve out open it's generally doesn't get too cold at night and and the cows can just scatter out and find a sagebrush to calve under so if if we if we know we have limited feed and limited water, then we try to estimate how much we're, we we have and we want to be there when we calve so so this year we're holding everything back we'll probably send the cows down in january and at least calve out there and if we don't have any spring or spring or winter moisture then yeah they'll probably be coming home early and that's what we've done the last two years is send them out late so that we have a, a good calving uh environment and we don't have to worry about scours. Um just a few coyotes will get a few calves and uh and then the ones that die we generally don't see so we don't feel too bad about them
2: <laughs> All right.
1: <laughs> so I guess uh
2: kind of along along that line, you know, what what are some since you've been kind of majorly involved in the program, you know what are what are some I guess significant changes you and your family have made to the operation, and kind of what what has been the result of those changes—good, bad, and different, whatever.
1: I I think the changes that uh, I've seen, and and when I was in, well, when I was a kid, you know probably, you know, 10 to 12, 14 years old. We were running our heifers out. We we used a lot of non-protein nitrogen supplementation. So the heifers probably weren't getting developed properly. We weren't protein supplement properly. We were just using just a A trace mineral salt, so they weren't getting the proper uh, mineral supplementation. And uh, we would go to bull sales where we'd buy bulls and and put them on these replacement heifers, and and they were probably six hundred pounds, maybe six fifty, as yearlings would come breeding time, and we'd turn these bulls in and and then we would have cabin problems that were amazing and uh, my dad finally got ambitious and he went back to i think it was the graham school back in kansas where they teach you how to pregnant pregnancy tests, and they teach you how to pull out cancer eyes and and basically, we're we're in a pretty limited geographic area where you don't have a lot of veterinary service. Uh, it's not readily available, particularly out on the strip. And and so he went to the school and he, he learned how to do C sections. And, uh, and I remember that we weren't very successful at doing C sections. He <laughs> must have gone like maybe, to the same school that my grandfather went to for C sections. Yeah, probably. So so we we tried. To combat that issue of breeding heifers, it's kind of like a putting a band-aid over an infected uh, sore. Anyway, we've started an artificial insemination program. It's probably been 35 years ago where we AI our heifers and we synchronize them and then artificial inseminate them. And uh, back then, when they were using the old synchromate B protocol and anyway and i think we have really developed that into a pretty successful successfully run operation and developed some pretty good fertility in our herd because of that so that's probably the big one of the biggest changes in is the influence of artificial insemination for ease and then also the improved genetics in our herd um trying to think of uh, other things that we did. Another thing that we really focus on is improving the forage base, forage base, the forage resource. And I mean, every, every year we're trying to improve that forage base. Along with that, we're trying to improve water development and Make that so we we always have sufficient resources to sustain the cow herd.
0: Kevin, how do you how do you improve your forage base? What are the practices, that you, or how are you guys doing that?
1: So so the biggest the biggest thing we 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 purchased a d7 cat i think it was like a 1968 or 69 d7 cat back in the early 70s when i was a kid i don't even remember purchasing it yet and uh my dad would it buy just enough diesel fuel to keep that cat running and he would push (laughs) trees and build stock ponds and and uh so, so for instance, we, we used to have an allotment, it's a couple BLM allotments, one of our spring pastures, and it would run, if I remember right, it was about thirty-nine cows for like three months or something like that, or a month and a half, you know, two or three months. It wasn't very long, not very many cows. Um, dad went in and cleared all the cedar trees out, planted some improved forage varieties and now this was back in the mid 80s so 30 35 years later uh we're probably running you
3: know, 800
1: cows for a month so you probably I'm not real great at math on the top of my head but that's probably a 30 40 in increase in, in forage phase um also and, and and so you know fast forward 35 years that cat is today up doing a chain harrow project which is removing out a lot of the brush and then replanting in improved varieties and species for not only cattle but also for wildlife and uh and of course my dad's pretty good about taking care of equipment but just the fact that that cat's been around so long and uh and been able to do you know thousands and thousands of acres of treatment over the years that will continue on for for many years i give my dad a hard time we don't know who's going to die first, the cat or him. But <laughs> if, if he dies, there's not going to be anybody to maintain it. So we might as well just bury him, big a big hole,
0: bury him both <laughs> together. <laughs> well, how do you work with the? I mean, how do you work with the BLM to 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 do some of these projects? Is have you built up a relationship, or I mean,
1: is it, is it a pretty simple process? Uh, I think the secret is, yeah, I think re- relationships is the secret, but also the people in the office really make the difference. So the BLM, um, people that we work with have just been really good through the years to help get projects done. The, the Arizona Strip Field Office, they have an amazing staff and I think they still have pretty, pretty outstanding staff. But we treated probably over 13, 15,000 acres of, uh, of sagebrush with spike out there over a period of four or five years, about probably 15, 20 years ago. And, uh, anyway, they, they, they've been pretty good. They're, they're, they're really good about helping us develop water and, fighting noxious weeds and things like that but i think it does come down to relationships you built with them and then also establishment of trust but also those blm folks really need to have a desire to see something happen on the ground and that's probably what i attribute a lot of it is, is they they just want to see something happen on the ground make it better than, than what it is. So
2: to kind of build on that, I I was just curious. So in your operation, it it seems like you have a lot of different duties, I guess. Is there, I mean, has your family, your operation kind of delegated certain people to go deal with with BLM, certain people deal with, you know, maybe the the breeding and genetic side, how how are you guys kind of delegating what's going on is it a, if you guys come to consensus and if someone does it or how, how do you guys kind of delegate duties around this, this operation
1: <laughs> well
2: you're asking hard questions there um, <laughs> well you're giving us some interesting stuff so I'm, I'm curious we're curious <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, maybe it's just been tradition over the the last few years, where you have a close-knit family working together, some fa- family members end up doing certain aspects of the of the management, maybe better, or maybe they like it better. And so, but it's it's usually working together and communicating and just letting letting everybody know. For instance, my dad does most of the cat work. Not to say that. Uh, His cousin doesn't step in and do a little bit here and there, but but he's, he's just good at maintaining equipment and keeping it running and uh, good at at the engineering design. And and then his cousin takes care of a lot of the farm work and the hay and and things like that. And then we all kind of help out on the, the, uh, the livestock and and we'll we'll take turns. So this year my family was in charge of moving the cattle up to our summer range, our, our summer forest permits. And so our, our family did it as a little family uh I tell my kids it's a family vacation, but it was kind of a little family reunion where we had everybody go up and it's a two, three day cattle drive where we're moving the cows up and camping and and uh anyway. So, so I guess it's just communication and, and and eventually we're just trying to make what needs to happen, happen and, and somebody has got to do it,
0: uh, eventually. You do. Kevin, um, you know, you talk about the Arizona strip and that we've noticed, you know, with some of the other producers we've talked to that you've adapted to a non-ideal environment, right? I mean, uh, the. Right. So we talked with John Ferry, who operated there in the, near the Great Salt Lake. And I mean, what are the challenges of operating in the Arizona Strip, and how do you manage those risks associated with that? So for us, and it's not the same for
1: everybody, for us, we have about 115,000 acres, or right? like, Yeah, so it's about 15 miles square chunk of real estate down there and there's not a live water on there's no no live water Um, so you're just really dependent on the rainfall and, and and typically those stock ponds you have to have a good rainfall so it floods to fill them up and uh, that that's just been a challenge developing those types of resources. And we 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 actually have two wells that we're developing this year, and they the one of them is a, an abandoned uranium mine, and the water is. Uh, I remember correctly, it's fifteen hundred feet deep or eighteen hundred feet deep. I mean it's it's cheap.
0: And it's not great quality water either. That's (laughs) it's got a little aftertaste to it, huh? (laughs) So so, so
2: and
0: then and then you you know the
1: pump costs about twenty five thousand dollars and then you gotta have a generator to run it because there's no power out there, and that's another fifteen thousand dollars, and so you know, your pump goes out and you're getting 11 gallons a minute, you know, it's like, is this really worth it if if something breaks down? I don't know. So, so water is definitely our challenge. And we, we look at every opportunity that we can to develop new sources of water catchments, which we have 10 of those out there. Um, and, and I don't know if your listeners know what a catchment is, or catchment or a guzzler and basically you put a sheet of plastic over an area of, of ground say like a quarter acre or a half acre and then that catches water and that runs into a tank a storage tank and uh, basically at one inch of water over an acre of ground will yield you about 27,000 gallons and so they're designed and so that if you have like a uh seven inch precept or a 10 inch precept zone that when it rains 75 percent of normal it would actually fill that tank full and then if it doesn't rain you probably don't have any forage out there to go to anyway but so so we've we've uh changed in that regard so we, we just develop as much water resources as we can Probably the other thing is we do a, a lot better job of protein supplementation and mineral supplementation through studies that the NRCS has done through vegetation, collecting and harvesting vegetation at certain times of the year. That dormant season, the protein is really low quality. Um, you know, four, probably higher than four, probably five to six percent on those dormant dormant season grasses I and mean, then you're pretty low on phosphorus at one time we were feeding a 12% phosphorus mix just to really and at that level of phosphorus the cows hardly even eat it because the, the mineral is such so bitter but uh, we, we backed away from that somewhat so it's about a six percent phosphorus Next and, and then of course copper is another big one that we try to to make sure we got adequate copper. Did that answer your Thank question? You. No, that was great. Thank you, Kevin. Well, it leads me to another
2: question. Me and you have talked about this before. You know, are you for your your production environment and your the things how you're kind of managing that risk, the for variable forage, the water, things like that? Are you selecting for a specific type of cow to to, to operate and be productive in that
1: environment well we we feel we are. Um, we feel we're we're trying to keep the the size moderate milk moderate, and yet we're trying to ensure that we have quality and as far as genetics so that the calves are are marketable. Anyway, we we struggle with getting our our first calf heifers to rebreed, and and I wonder if that's a combination of maybe we're not taking good enough care of them, or we don't have the right genetics. Um Anyway, it's it's still we're still trying to determine um, what what those factors
2: are. Well, I mean, in in that limited environment too, I think that. You know, with with a heifer, I mean, heifers are hard enough as it is, but with a limited environment, I think you're really you're really challenged to find that optimal heifer a lot of times because, like like me and you've talked about, you know, that environment and other things really kind of contribute to the fertility because it is so lowly heritable. So, I think you're you might have that optimal heifer like we've talked, but maybe the environment's too hard on her. I mean, there's so many factors to that puzzle
1: that just make it difficult so well and uh, if, if, you, they, if you think they, about this yeah. and i've been wanting to, to uh, compare it but if we if we trail those cows 100 miles to the from the summer to the winter and then they have to scatter out and oftentimes travel a mile to two miles to get feed maybe even three miles from feed to water and then we Bring them back home, and then they trail another twenty-five miles up, up and back from the summer. So this, these cows are being moved, you know, one hundred and fifty miles a year. That they have to eat right. enough calories to not only just move that distance, but also produce the calf. And, right. And that, so it may be a little more challenging than a lot of operations have and and so i would say we have a, a real opportunity to identify those heifers that or the genetics that are more efficient in that type of a high demand operation and and for somebody else they may just be a an amazing cow that they don't have to travel do to you know, that's, that's a great point you know so I
2: mean, it's it's amazing that they're, I mean, just the fact they're able to do that, cab out, rebreed, the ones that are doing it, you know, is just, it's, it's amazing from a management standpoint and a, a genetic standpoint that they're able to do that just because of the challenges they're facing that others are probably not even coming close to having to, to account for
1: or something like that yeah and and i as far as infusing those genetics into our herd there may be a guy that has the best genetics out there but when we go by bulls and we turn them out and that bull that he was raised in an irrigated pasture and walked 20 yards to feed in water boy we have a lot of lameness issues and, and uh and so it's hard to find bulls that have the good genetics that we want in our herd that will actually survive and do well. You should look at our
2: uh, crossbreeding program that we're doing up here.
1: Yeah,
2: standing or Judas. <laughs> for sound. For yeah. <laughs> Just saying. Just throwing it out there. <laughs>
1: so-
3: Kevin, with with that evaluation, how much how much does drought confound your ability to sort a lot of this out? Because in some of those years, do you think drought can overcome your best planning?
1: Well, rephrase your question.
3: So what, what I'm asking is, you're looking for. You know Matt's talked about the ideal cow, right? finding a cow that can persist, but with intermittent drought right showing up not every year but every every third year, every fifth year how much how much does that factor into your decision
1: uh, selecting yeah yeah uh, selection. selection so I don't know that I have a great answer for, for your question. We, we, of course, we're like most people, we select the biggest and best heifers at, at weaning time to go on the replacement heifers. And then we, we kind of just let, if the drought is gonna cull them out, we, we let the drought coal cold them out. Does that make sense? I mean, we, tr- yeah. we take as good care of them as possible through mineral supplementation and and, and appropriate stocking rates. So we try we try not to to overgraze the pasture where the, the cows are losing body condition scores so that they fall out of the herd. We want we want to give them adequate op- opportunity to rebreed. But yeah. if if the drought is affecting their performance and they have adequately, we, we, we let the drought cool them out.
3: Yeah, I, I guess that's kind of what I was getting to. So you're using drought as a consideration then as part of that cooling process,
1: essentially. Correct. I, I know this year we we culled pretty heavy and uh, got rid of uh, quite a few poor doers. And, and Quite a few of the older cows as well
3: because i i think sometimes or i wonder maybe i wonder better way of saying it wonder sometimes if there's it, it appears there's kind of two different ways of viewing drought one is you view it as a reality meaning it's going to happen it's you know and it becomes part of your considerations the other is you view it as an anomaly meaning well it isn't every year and so therefore you know I'll just hope it doesn't happen. Does that make sense? And so, I think in in, in those two different approaches, you can end up with different outcomes in terms of um, management. You know, both with your range line and with your animals. And it um, kind of co-
2: goes to what you've talked about before, Zach, or, Uh You may have that couch that you think is really, really good, and she makes it through that drought season. And you think, okay, this this is a very resilient type cow. She does very well. And then that next year, she comes up open. Now, more likely, that's not a result of her genetics. That's a result of the trauma or whatever she endured during that, that period of drought, rather than her ability to stay in the system. It was just a that compounding factor. It's like you said, I think you've said before that you see the effect in, of the drought, but then you don't see that effect until that next year, really, both on forage and animals.
1: Correct. Yeah. Yep. Definitely.
3: So what kind of record keeping do you do, Kevin, to keep track of all of that? Because I mean there's a you know, you you just mentioned several moving parts in terms of your heifer selection, and it's not an exact science, you know, selecting the perfect cow for your operation. But what 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 types of records have you guys found most beneficial to, to track to keep to kind of help you
1: out with that? Uh so that that's probably that we're commercial operation and so that's probably one way that one area that we could improve is our record keeping um basically probably the most important thing that we do is when they come down the chute if they're open then they get sent down the road and and uh, we we double air tag everything so we can keep track of the cows and identify them if we need to while they're on the range. But as far as individual, this cow produced an 800 pound calf. We really don't have any idea. We, we just bring them in, separate the cows and calves and then, and then, uh, and we don't do any individual Weights other than on our replacement heifers, we do calve out our replacement heifers and we will put a ear tag in the cow and calf and, and usually get a, uh, individual weight on the replacement heifer calves. So we have kind of an idea there. We, we also keep pretty good track of the replacement, excuse me, the replacement heifers, uh, as far as their individual performance. So as they move into the herd, we'll keep pretty good track of individual weights and how much they weigh first, just to make sure they make it to the appropriate body weight by the time they're breeding, but also to to monitor their performance. Did that answer your question?
2: Yeah. So I guess, uh... I guess, kind of looking back, is there anything you would have maybe implemented sooner as a as a management option, or maybe like done different something that you implemented that you may have wanted to do differently?
1: Well, there's always the hindsight's twenty twenty, and uh, particularly with drought say, well, I should have done this and should have done that. And I would have got a lot better read back. Um, we we purchased an ultrasound machine to do our pregnancy diagnosis this year. And, and uh, I think we I, we should have done that several years ago. That's been kind of a handy little that tool to help with marking expensive little tool, but uh, it's been pretty handy. Um trying to think. I, I I really would wish there was a a way that we could do artificial insemination on more than just our heifers. So if we could somehow artificial inseminate, you know, the top ten or twenty percent of our cattle and then terminal sire the rest, that would that, that would be Really, what I would like to see happen, but it's just the, the way we arrange operation. It makes it pretty difficult to to do that. So, I guess kind of build on that. What what
2: what was the idea behind? Is it is it because of where the heifers are located? You're, it's easier to get them in, sync them up, and AI them versus bringing the cows in and having them there for an extended period of time.
1: So. Typically, after the heifers are weaned, they're actually put in a feed yard, so they're dry bunked up until they're bred, and then they're turned out and integrated into the herd um, so so that's so just yeah they're they're much more accessible when you when you're feeding them throwing hay to them than when they're out out and about
2: okay. And then I guess kind of to, to wrap up, this is our kind of prediction question for you. You know, going into the future, you know, what are, what are some, especially with your operations in public land, private land, you know, having all this family involved, you know, what do you think some of the hurdles that you may have to come or overcome in the future? And how do you think that maybe the next generation may have to manage this operation differently? In order to
1: succeed and go forward. So, one of the hurdles or the challenges that we're having is a labor. It, it's a fairly management-intensive operation, and
2: and everybody,
1: everybody, and anybody wants to show up for the the cattle drives, the brandings, and be involved in 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 the fun part of the ranch. It's the the fixing fence and the irrigating and and the upkeep and the mechanic work and all those other issues that we have to have in order to to run cattle and that's that's one of the big challenges for us is to find the not only qualified but available labor to uh, to help us get that that um, Just just a lot of labor intensive uh I mean fixing fence when you got you know thirty, forty some odd pastures and and they are divided by four strand barbed wire. It's it's a lot of a lot of miles of fence and it needs to be done every every year if if you're gonna do it correctly. That's one of our challenges, a production challenge. The other challenge is, I, I think where the market's going, is it's kind of pushing us a lot. I think it's pushing everybody into more of a, a niche marketing. What What's your niche? Are you going to direct market to the consumer? Are you going to sell um, a commodity product? And if you're selling a commodity product, are you going the organic or the non-hormone route or, you know, where, where are you going to find your niche and, and how is that going to make you the most uh, profit in the long term? And I think that's kind of a direction I think everybody's going to have to take a step back and look and and just see where, where, what what direction do we want to go and what niche will fit the best for 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 our operation.
2: Well, any
0: other questions? Eric, Matt? I think we're good. Questions. Kevin, we appreciate your time. Appreciate your expertise. Thank you uh, for inviting me and happy to share what little bit of knowledge I have. Oh, I think you underestimate that little bit part, but uh <laughs> yeah. it's always humbling to visit with producers like yourself and see the challenges that you guys overcome to stay in business. It's awesome. So thank you. Yeah, thank you, um, and I think one of our
1: our greatest resources is extension and the NRCS and BLM and and federal agencies, believe it or not they They really bring a lot to the operation and help us out in in ways and and i i i find that there's a a real desire for people like yourselves and in the agencies the federal agencies to keep ranchers on the on the ground and and I appreciate that that's that's that means a lot to the ranchers and the guys in the field I know there's a lot of people that don't say that, but my observations, that's, that's the way it is. And I, there's, there's, there's some anti-cal haters and I'm sure there's, there's plenty of those out there in the federal agencies, but, but we really have a lot of good people that, that want to see ranchers stay in business. And, and so I appreciate that.
0: Awesome. Well, thank hey. you. Stay safe, Kevin. We'll be in touch thank in the you. future. Thank you invitation, Im- Im- and we'll talk to you later. Sounds good. Thank you, Kevin. Have hey, a good Kevin. rest of your day.
1: Evan. See you later.